Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I'm your host, Paul Niefer, and today we're actually, again, we're not going to have a, a talk with a farmer, but we're going to talk with somebody that's definitely associated with farming and, and provides or helps provide a necessary uh, service or an option for farmers. And uh, today's guest is Michael Gunderson from MetLife. Uh, Mike, how's it going? I hear I think you got a little bit of rain going on where you're at. Well, yeah, I'm here at the Kansas City Federal Reserve this morning, listening in on their ag symposium, and it's uh, sprinkling here. But uh, thanks for having me, Paul. Really excited to be part of the conversation. You know, I've 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 never attended the Kansas City Ag Symposium, but it always looks like a fairly good uh, symposium that gives you a lot of good information. Maybe before we get going on the MetLife side. Just share how many times have you gone to the symposium? What do you enjoy about it? Let's let's just have a little bit of brief. This is sort of ad lib. You know, we didn't discuss sure, this beforehand, yeah. but uh, I'm, yeah. I'm just curious uh, what you're finding out and what you found out in the past. Yeah, I've attended a few times in the past, and of course, they had uh, you know a few pauses there during the COVID area era. This year, they're looking at labor challenges in agriculture, and uh, one of the highlights of the symposium is hearing from the president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve. So we heard from Esther George last night and some remarks about inflation and what they intend to do there. So always a good lineup of speakers. They've got uh, academics and industry here. They've got farmers here. They want to hear from every segment of the value chain. And so it's always a great conversation and always thought provoking and uh, sort of kicks off the summer nicely in that regard. Now it's a, what, a two day symposium or a day and a half or how, how long does it go? Yeah, they sort of let you fly in and and start with lunch and then fly out after day two after lunch. So uh, it's a, it can be a pretty quick in and out if you want it to be. Okay, okay. Well, and I've been the I don't know how many to, uh, let's see because I started investing in mini storages on and off back in like two thousand and two or three, and I've had a few in the Kansas City area. I, I guess in the last twenty years, almost twenty years, I've been to Kansas City. 50 times, maybe 60 times. I, I do like Kansas City. It's uh, one of my favorite cities in the Midwest. So, well, enough of that. Let's 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 go into your background. Just uh, give the audience a, a a good description of maybe where you grew up, what your background is, and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. So I grew up in Northwest Illinois. My brother's still a dairy farmer just south of Freeport, milking a couple of hundred Holsteins there, and. Um, I went to college at the University of Illinois, and I loved it so much, I almost nearly never left. I spent a, a, a stop at Cornell and a stop at uh, Purdue, and I was a faculty member at the University of Florida and a faculty member, again, at Purdue University before a couple of years ago, MetLife uh, came calling and asking me if I would be uh, interested in joining their ag finance group. Okay, so at the universities, and, and definitely you've... Uh you've identified some ag-centric universities, Purdue and Cornell and <laughs> Illinois, Florida, maybe a little bit. I mean, I, I think us out here on the West Coast, we don't view University, University of Florida as necessarily being an ag-based school, but maybe it is a little bit. But uh, what was your role at those universities? Well, and I'll tell you, Paul, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I was kind of surprised to learn just how much agriculture is in the state of Florida, tucked in around, you know, the, the magic kingdom, if you will. And um, we liked it. When I was at Florida, we always touted that we had the single largest ag research budget in the country. A lot of other places 
split it up, but the University of Florida was a very large ag research budget, and they had, uh, you know, weather year-round that they could do some experiments, so that always helped that too. But my focus was always on the economic side, so I've been teaching agricultural finance, agricultural agribusiness management, and agribusiness strategy uh, for about 13 years while I was at the university, both at Florida and at Purdue. And uh, okay. when I was at Purdue, part of the Center for Food and Agricultural Business and doing some uh, executive education there. Well, and I know, you know, again, speaking of Florida, I think one of the largest cattle ranches in the country is in the, in Florida. And like you say, there's there's a lot of well, sugar cane and, and cattle and and a lot of fruits and vegetables are, are definitely grown in that state. And, and you're right. Uh, there's quite a few people in Florida, but there's a lot of rural area, too. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the devastating thing for that state is just uh, citrus canker and citrus greening. We're going to harvest the smallest orange crop uh, since World War II. And it's just really too bad because that was uh, an important part of that state, an important part of the university. You know, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, uh, the football stadium, also endowed a chair in the Ag Econ Department. So a lot of connections to agriculture there at that university. Yeah, I know that canker has definitely been, um, you know, devastating for that industry. Are they figuring out how to 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 eradicate that, or is it just slowly over time that whole industry is just going to disappear? That's that's a great question. And uh, you know, as I look into my crystal ball, I think there are some that are just dedicated to it, to no matter what, and they've got a cocktail of um, of uh, things that they do to help that tree uh, still produce, and so. Um, it's costly, it's expensive, and they, they uh, have to take it seriously. They haven't quite figured out a cure yet. Um, so I think, you know, there will always be a, a, a set of folks that are dedicated to the citrus industry, and so I can't imagine it going away completely. Um, but it's certainly not going to come back in the way that it once was probably. And uh, so that's unfortunate. And I'm trying to remember, because um, this is always sort of interesting stuff, I think, even for the audience, Florida's oranges, are prim is it primarily for juicing in Florida than out in like California and so on is for eating or or what's, yep. what, what, is yeah. that is that how it is? That's pretty much 100% correct. In fact, it was sometimes, I mean, you could always find Florida oranges if you wanted when you were in Florida, but it was sometimes much easier to find a California orange than it was. Uh, Florida orange to peel and eat at the table, but uh, even you, Calif even the folks in California are drinking uh, Florida orange juice, or <laughs> you know, from one of our international competitors, more likely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it is a global industry. Well, ag, ag, at all is definitely a global industry. I mean, you look at the ag imports and exports. I mean, the imports are almost as high as the exports. You know, because you're importing fruits, vegetables, nuts. Uh, animal products and so on. So it, it is it is pretty interesting. Um, well, so that was your academia career, but now you're over at, at MetLife. Let's go through what 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 you do or what what your focus is in it at MetLife. Yeah, I feel like we're one of the best kept secrets in agriculture. You know, I think most folks know MetLife as an insurance company, maybe uh, identify with Snoopy. And um, our tagline at MetLife, the insurance company, is always with you building a more confident future. And uh, when we take those life insurance premiums from our clients, we reinvest those in real assets that generate incomes out into the future so we can pay on those claims in the future. And one of the places that reinvest that money is in agriculture. So total assets under management at MetLife Investment Management is a little over $650 billion. 
about 120 billion of that is in real estate and agriculture. So we both own some real estate as well as lend to real estate. And then in our group, our, our ag group is about uh, 23 billion. Almost, almost all is in ag mortgages to farmers uh, across the country. We're in virtually every state and uh, obviously we focus where agriculture is the heaviest. So across the high states and out into California, down into the mid South. And so got a, a nationwide presence with uh, regional offices in Memphis, Overland Park and Fresno. And uh, I sit in our headquarters in Whippany, New Jersey and help investors understand what's going on in agriculture and why it's a great place uh, to park some investment. Yeah, I, I think uh, farmers sometimes thinks, you know, the only way they can get a, a mortgage is either through a bank or the farm credit system. But, but the reality is MetLife, like I say, 23 billion, that's a pretty good sized presence. There's other uh, other life insurance companies out there, maybe not as large as MetLife or doesn't have as large a presence, but they still have billions invested uh, in that market. So it is certainly an option for those farmers. And and what is the typical type loan that a farmer might be looking at if, if they wanted to do a loan with MetLife? Yeah, you know, our our investors' needs are long-term, and so we're looking to make some long-term mortgages, typically, you know, 10, 15, 30-year mortgages. Um, and uh, we're, we're, you know, strong asset back, so it's got to have some good collateral with it. So uh, we're always looking to uh, lend on some really prime farm ground and uh, work with borrowers who uh, have a vision for success in the future. I know out in our area, and again, you mentioned California, we have quite a bit of presence here in, in the Pacific Northwest with with tree, you know, apples, cherries, uh, pears, and then some of the soft fruits and then grapes, of course. And I know that, that MetLife has a pretty good presence in that permanent crop side too, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a real strong presence on the West Coast all the way from Washington apples down to California grapes uh, down into, um, you know, into Arizona growing some vegetables. So I think um, permanent plantings offer a lot of uh, attractive um, qualities, right? It's good, good farm ground growing yep. a good crop that's high in high demand and earns a, a good premium. So um, this predates me. I understand this isn't true anymore, but at one point in time, uh, a very large share of the Granny Smith apples were financed by MetLife. So yep. that's not true anymore, but uh, we, we have a commitment to that sector and uh, some expertise there. Yep. Yeah. And then is there, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with lenders, there's what I call sort of a sweet spot. You know, there's a size or type alone that they really like to do. Is there a, is there a, a typical sweet spot for, for MetLife? You know, I think that's one of the great things about being uh, a life insurance company and having the size of commitment that we do is that we can take loans of all sizes. You know, I think sometimes we mention that we sort of started a million dollars, but, um, you know, anything up from that, we're interested in working with uh, successful growers who are helping to feed, clothe, and house uh, the globe. So um, we try not to let uh, size be limit a limiting factor for us. And then is it typically a fixed rate or is it a floating rate or is it really just up to the borrower what they would like to have or what 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 type of rate are we typically looking at? Well, you know, I think in this extremely low interest rate environment, everybody was locking everything in fixed for 30 years and that's just uh, prudent financial management. But, um, you know, I think um, 
as an ag economist, I understand that uh, little green pieces of paper, money is the ultimate commodity, and we've got to be out in the marketplace uh, differentiating around our services and how we meet the borrower where they are. So, um, you know, we've got uh, a, a team spread across the country embedded in local communities. They've been working from home well before COVID. Um, they're embedded in their communities, and they can talk to a producer, a borrower, about uh, what strategy makes sense for them, whether it's fixed or variable, and uh, and why those what the trade offs are associated with that. And and you're right, uh, being a a life uh, typically a life insurance company versus let's say a bank, and and I'm going to put on a little of my economics hat, and that's probably going to get me in trouble here. But uh, <laughs> Michael, you, you'll be there to save me. But you know, with an insurance company, they do have a 30, 40, 50 year horizon because they're doing annuities, they're doing life insurance products. So the the ups and downs of interest rates maybe isn't as important for the life insurance company compared to, let's say, a bank that's looking a little bit more short term. They're trying, well, at least with the bank, they're trying to match up short term with short term, long term with long term. You know, a life insurance company is saying, hey, we're going to price this life insurance product or this annuity product over the next 30 years. Now we just need to go out and get a mortgage that will you know, produce the income to cover that uh, expected tail for the next 30 years. Do I, do I have that pretty close to being correct or, or where would you say I'm probably a little bit off? No, I think that's spot on. And I think um, you know, that is the advantage of working with a life insurance company. We're invested and your long-term success. I mean, I think one of the surprising things for me when I joined MetLife is we've been lending to agriculture for over 100 years. We stuck with farmers through the Great Depression, through the farm financial crisis of the 1980s. Um, this is, this is a, a company that's committed to farmers for the long run. And uh, we don't have as much need for liquidity in the short run. And so we do, uh, you know, we do uh, understand that our banking peers are out there offering the short-term operating credit that folks need to be successful. And I think uh, I think he hits the nail on the head. Okay, okay. Well, Michael, right now we're going to go ahead and take a, a quick little break for a sponsor's message, and then we'll come back here and we'll continue the conversation. And you sort of teed it up for me, me a little bit. I think after the break, we'll sort of discuss Matter of fact, I'm getting ready to probably do a column for Top Producer Magazine, and I'm going to entitle it, Is the 2020s Like the 1980s? And and we'll uh, we'll, we'll come back to that, and, 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 and you know, I'll let you, so I'm, I'm giving you a hint to what we're going to talk about after the break. So again, this is the uh, Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. This is Paul Nieper. Uh, we're going to take a quick break for a sponsored message, and then we'll come back and continue the conversation with uh, with Michael uh, Gunderson from MetLife. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome back, everyone, to the Farm CPA Podcast. Uh, I'm Paul Neefer, your host. Uh, we're going to go ahead and continue our conversation with Michael Gunderson from MetLife. So, Michael, 
you know, right before the break, I had sort of teased the that my concern and, and you know, the old saying is history never repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes or a lot of times it rhymes. And the way I look at it, the reason why the 2010s, you know, we had the, um, you know, we really had great profits for farmers in 12 and 13 and even before that. And then we had that six, seven, eight year period where it was pretty bad. Well, I don't know bad, but it was not very good. But the, the positive during that period, if you want to call it that, was extremely low interest rates. Now, if we go back to the 1970s, we had appreciation in land values. We had appreciation in crop uh, pricing. But then we started to hit that period of inflation on crop inputs or on all the inputs. And we had very high interest rates. And my concern right now is, you know, we've had a couple of years of really good pricing in commodity markets. I think it's going to continue for the next two to three years. I think farmers right now can lock in pretty good profits or pretty good prices. I'm not saying profits, but prices. But if the Federal Reserve is very aggressive and back or vulcanizes it, and you know, starts bumping up rates 10, 12, 14 percent. They might try to do that to you know cut off inflation if inflation is going to stick. Are, do you do you share some of my concerns about the fact that you know the later in the in this decade may start looking a little bit like the 1980s? Well, um, you know, last night we heard from Esther George, she's the president of the KC Fed here, and she said that uh, getting back to two percent inflation is the top of mind item for the Federal Reserve, and so I think we're going to see. Uh, rate hikes until we see inflation come back down under control. And I think, you know, I, I don't know that we're exactly where we were in the 1970s and, and Volcker really having to take it to, you know, almost credit card interest rates on farmland mortgages. I don't, I don't think we're going to get back to that place. And I think, um, especially for the younger producer, they've, they've, they've been a little bit spoiled with low interest rates for as long as we've had them, you know, even as we tick back up to sort of four, 5%, uh, home mortgage rates, those that's the normal. That's not unusual. That's the normal. It's when we get onto the other side of that, you know, on the other side of that average that we start to worry a little bit. But we're at this at this point, we're still just heading back towards that average. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's and I think the other thing too is we've only had a couple years of of, of decent farm income. And, you know, if you go back to the seventies. Uh, you know, you had that super bull cycle from about 71, 72, you know, when the Russians had to start really buying grain. And that lasted all the way really until the early, um, you know, 79, 80, 81. I mean, it was a seven, eight, nine, 10 year cycle. And when you have those cycles where you have that long period where it's easy to make mistakes that you don't know about until you have a 1980s. Uh, right now, we still don't have that cycle. So uh, I, I just have some concern. You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, uh, but I think it's prudent for farmers to understand they, they just need to be a little cautious. Uh, uh, and uh, certainly, I think with the uh, rapid increase in input pricing, uh, they're feeling the pain right now. Yeah, pricing is great as far as selling your product, uh, but your profits really aren't as good as they would be with normally that high of a price. Well, that that's true, and that's true on the dairy side as well. You know, I always think everybody's uh, glad to see high corn prices, except for my brother, and he always reminds me of that. And as he yep. feeds them to dairy cows, even though he can sell milk for uh, you know twenty five, twenty six dollars a hundred weight, he reminds me, well, that's 
uh, feeding them eight dollar a bushel corn too. So, yeah. so yeah, I, yeah, I agree, Paul. I think there's a lot of reason to to be concerned about the macro economy and the and the influence it has on the sector. You know, I think um, Brent Gloy and David Widmore did their podcast, and that was that's some essential listening for folks that didn't live through the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I had Brent on the uh, podcast a few months back, and uh, they've done that podcast, and then they had a another one i'm trying to remember what it was uh should have been prepared for that but something they have on ethanol one. i think yeah yeah something the on ethanol, ethanol yeah. industry and how it came about and and so on they really do a good job so uh, well we've sort of talked about it a little bit but let's expand on it so what would be your current outlook for the ag industry in general yeah so i think um you know 22 is sort of sort of uh, on its way, right? Folks have acquired their inputs. They've maybe locked in some prices, and so they hopefully locked in some positive margin. And um, we're going to continue to see volatility in the markets, both uh, in the equity markets, but also in the commodity markets. I don't think that's going away through the calendar year as we see things unfold. You know, um, Drought Monitor came out the other day and said I was going to possibly be in drought this summer. If that happens, but you know, I'd hate to see where where corn prices might go to. So. Um, 2022, there's, you know, there's uh, sort of increasingly a crop in the ground. It seems like they caught up last week, um, except for maybe up in North Dakota. So, okay there. Um, you know, I think a pretty good outlook for the livestock sectors. We see some pretty robust export demand there, so that's helping uh, support prices a little bit. And then the other thing that we've been watching pretty closely just because of our exposure is that California drought and what's happening there. You know, I think most of our borrowers are positioned to have multiple sources of irrigation, so they've they can manage it this year. But man, if it's going to drag into a third year of La Nina and a third year of drought, uh, it's going to start to get really concerning here pretty soon. So, you know, I think in 2022, sort of uh, the the balls are in play, and we just got to see where they land. I think, like you, out into 2023, 2024, I think we're going to see commodity prices remain relatively elevated. You know, next to historical averages, I think. Uh, um, we're not, I, I think we're more likely to see corn stay sort of where it is than to go back down to 450 a bushel. So, um, you know, and I think that's just the dynamics of the marketplace out there. We've got tight stocks right now, um, and even good crops this year aren't going to maybe replenish them back to the levels that historically we were comfortable with. So, I like you. I, I share some uh, at least the pricing optimism out into the future. We'll have to see what we'll have to pay attention to what happens on the input side and how much that erodes those margins. Yeah, and I, I guess my concern talking to farmers across the country, and that, that is the nice thing about having a podcast like this and, and writing for Top Producer and so on, is is I'm able to you know, communicate with a broad spectrum of farmers. And I think their concern isn't necessarily the pricing of the inputs for the 2023 prop, it's the availability of mm -hmm. the inputs. And I think that also is going to put a prop under under the pricing of corn and soybeans and wheat and so on, because if you can't put all the inputs in that you want to, your yield's not going to be as good. And I think that's going to show up in the national yield. Now, I may be wrong by the time, you know, they they start planning uh, a year from now, maybe there's plenty of availability, but I, I, I just don't know. And out in our area, we can't get uh, a gasoline right now. I, I went across to our little, uh, uh, I'm in our wall wall office right now. I went across to the little Circle K just across the road from us, and every single one of the uh, gas station or the gas pumps 
has a sign saying, hey, we're out of gas other than diesel. You can oh. get diesel oh, wow. and you go over to the Tri-Cities, which is about 350,000 people. And I think they have the same issue going on. So that's that may start show, start to show up here a little bit. Yeah, for sure. We're paying attention to the supply chain issues and, you know, how things like a conflict uh, in Russia and Ukraine impact export of fertilizers and how that uh, flow impacts farmers all over the globe, right? I think in the U.S. we're a little bit less reliant on Russian fertilizers, but um, yeah. it is a global market. So once you take that supply off the off the off the market, it's going to have an effect on prices and availability, like you say. I don't know, we were rolling here into the Kansas City Fed this morning. I saw a gas station have a gas for $4.04 a gallon. And coming from New Jersey, I thought, man, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're well above $4 a gallon in New Jersey. Yeah, we're at, uh, you know, at my little uh, town where I live in, it starts at 509 and goes up. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so 509 would be 87, right. 89 is 529, and then premiums 549. Diesel starts at 5. I think diesel's at 599 to 609 in our area. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 and that, and, and, and that's if you can get it. So, uh, but, uh, uh, well, now the ag industry then leads into farmland values. And, and certainly at the end of 2021, and matter of fact, I just did a blog post yesterday on this, um, dealing with the fact that if you looked at, because the Kansas City Fed, again, Nathan Kaufman and, and his, uh, um, co-worker done a good post on that, that if you looked at the land values year over year increase in values, it was like 32% for the mountain states, almost everything in that, you know, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, Northern Indiana, Western Missouri was 22 to 29% increase, but the increase in the first quarter versus the fourth quarter of 2021 uh, was maybe two, three percent, and you're starting to see that increase starting to deflate a little bit. And matter of fact, I have a, I get a Twitter post from somebody in, in Iowa showing the land auctions and what the price have gone for. And I remember back in the fourth quarter of 2021, lots of pricing in that 15 to $22,000 range. I think I've seen one $15,000 per acre for since, uh, you know, like, uh, February 28th. So I, I I think you're starting to see a break on that increase in farmland values. I'm not necessarily saying they're going down, but I'm just curious what your, you know, if interest rates go up another two, three, four uh, hundred basis points, what what's going to happen to to farmland values? Yeah, it's uh something obviously we care deeply about all of, almost all of our mortgages are backed with some high quality farm ground and so we pay really close attention to farmland values we, we put out our own thought piece a little bit you know one of the one of the challenges here is the interaction of inflation and nominal interest rates real interest rates and farmland values and so you know in an inflationary environment uh, many investors see farmland as an inflation hedge in a place to park money sort of safely um, and so maybe the demand doesn't uh, trail off as fast as it otherwise would in those situations, even as interest rates are ticking up. Now, you know, for us, we lend um, to timberland as well as farmland. So we do pay attention to timber and what's happening in that sector. Lumber prices have been all over the board. Yeah. Um, they've come back down, though, because as these interest rates inch up, we expect that uh, folks are going to slow down on new home construction and new home purchases and uh you know that's going to affect their 
demand for their product. And I think that's the same on the farmland mortgages side. As rates see interest rates tick up, uh, demand is either going to cool off a little bit or folks just aren't going to be able to pencil out the cash flow at higher interest rates and be able to bid like they have been, you know, those sort of astronomical prices you were quoting. I see those same things come across Twitter and, uh, and email too. And I think um, it's, it's, it's probably got to slow down a little bit. And frankly, you know, if we stay on sort of that overheated track for too long, then concerns of a bubble and, uh, you know, sort of uh, recreation of the 1980s becomes a concern again. So I think yeah. it, it's much better for it to slow down than it is to sort of fall off and crash. Well, and I think uh, lots of farmers out there still have a fair amount of liquidity. They've they've built up a pretty good war chest, uh, uh, and they may not even have to borrow that much from MetLife, and they can afford, hey, yeah, I know I might be overpaying a little bit for the land, but this is the quarter section that came up. Uh, the last time it changed hands was 50 years ago. I have the cash. I'm going to buy it. I don't care what the return is. You know, I I want that piece of dirt, so... Well, and I think, you know, we look across our portfolio, farmers really have been very prudent. They've uh, uh, shored up their balance sheets. You know, I think the entire farm finance sector learned its lessons in the 1980s. We are paying attention to sort of uh, the balance sheets and making sure we have adequate working capital to endure periods of stress so that we don't have, um, you know, a recreation of the 1980s. And so I think as we look across our borrowers, they've really been prudent with the with the additional net income they realized maybe over the last couple of years and made sure their balance sheets are strong and they are in a position, like you say, to go out and acquire it with cash if they want. And that's, you know, as long as there's uh, some supply and demand factors there, it sort of makes sense that maybe uh, farmland values won't, uh, won't uh, slow down. And, you know, it'll be a slowdown in growth, but it won't be a decline in values. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, I got to be, uh, yeah, I got to be honest, and that's probably not the. It, anytime somebody says they got to be honest, I, I feel like they're not being honest. But, uh, <laughs> the you rest know, of the time. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I got to be honest. That you know, I'm I'm one of those ones that was buying farmland last year. You know, I bought. Uh, let's see, I bought uh, two two different separate tracks. I bought some land in Missouri and some land about two miles away from where I grew up. So, uh, you know, I I, I definitely uh, and and that's the farm boy you know, coming, coming home <laughs> to roost, you know, that's my part of my retirement package. And even my wife is okay with that. So, uh, but, uh, well, well, we're, we've, we've gone through farmland values. We've gone through the ag industry. We've gone through MetLife. I, I guess one question I always try to ask at the end is, uh, you know, what keeps you up at night? Is there something that, uh, that, that you worry about uh, on a, either a short-term or long-term basis? Well, um, you know, on a short-term basis, it's my kids sometimes, but uh, they're they're wonderful, so that's that's okay for me. But um, you know, I think on a longer term, you know, as we look out over the sector, you know, and I think about um, a lot of a, a lot of parking spots in the MetLife parking lot are dedicated to electric vehicles, and um, you know, it isn't going to happen tomorrow. We're not going to replace the entire car fleet with electric vehicles tomorrow, but it's on the horizon. We're watching it happen. And uh, what does that mean for ethanol on the other side of that? And, you know, I think we've heard the administration and the, and the, and the, and the commodity groups talk about what do we want to do on the other side of this ethanol demand? And I think the industry needs to really plan for that because 40% of the corn crop goes to ethanol right now. And yeah. if that, if that demand dried up, what would we see happen to commodity prices or production? You know, where would we have to shift to? So I think that's one thing. I think the other one that's really concerning to me is, uh, 
uh, uh, return to protectionism, right? And I think when there are limited places on this planet where we can grow food and there's not a limited number of mouths to feed, whenever we restrict the flow of food and agricultural commodities, that just results in more hunger. And we're seeing that as a result of this invasion. And I think, um, you know, our sector does a great job talking about feeding the globe and some find it cliche, but I think uh, when, the, when the challenges arise with global hunger again, people are reminded just how important uh, our sector is in, in trying to help, uh, help this world be successful. So uh, th- those two things are two things I think a lot about. Yeah, yeah, no, those those are good comments, and you know, even on you know, I've I've you're right, forty percent of of corn goes for ethanol, but I think sometimes we also have to realize that a lot of what isn't that corn that goes into ethanol, it isn't just ethanol that comes out. That's you know, true. it's DDGs yeah. and so DDGs, on. DDGs, yeah, my and, brother likes those. So yeah, and if if you didn't produce that ethanol, you know, the product going to the cow or to the pig yeah. or to the sheep or whatever wouldn't be, you know, as, as useful. I mean, it's just, and plus we got sustainable aviation fuel, you know, that, that whole thing could take, yeah, maybe lose some corn acres, but we're going to have more soybean acres. So there'll, there'll be something that, uh, and we still have, you know, seven or 8 billion uh, mouths that we have to feed worldwide. So I I think farmers are still going to be okay. Well, I I agree with you, Paul. I think uh, I'm, I am an economist at heart, and I do think the market will figure it out. Um, but there will be winners and there will be losers. And I think yeah. just uh, being proactive and putting yourself in a position to be one of the winners rather than one of the losers, that's you, you got to pay attention to what's going on in the markets and what's happening in the news. And I think, um, like you, our, our sector is always going to be essential. And so uh, I'm, I'm 100% bullish on agriculture. Yeah, get, so am I. So, And that's a good way to end the podcast, Michael, unless there's something else that uh, – you want to bring up, uh, we'll go ahead and sign off unless there's something else you wanted to, to discuss. Not this morning, but I sure appreciate the time and thanks for having me on. Well, and maybe we'll, uh, we'll circle back another six months or nine months and then find out what's going on since uh, the last time we talked. So I'd really enjoy that. Okay. Again, uh, for everybody out there, this is the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Neifer, your host, and we're going to go ahead and sign off and uh, we'll see you next time. Oh,